All right, shalom. Can we try that one more time? Shalom. That's what I'm talking about. You know how to make a good Jewish boy feel at home. So that's not just me saying hi. That's actually what we're talking about today. We're talking about shalom or peace. And there's a lot of cultures that greet each other with the pronouncement of peace, right? Aloha also means peace. But it's the final pronouncement uh, or blessing of God in the series, in, in the priestly blessing that we've been looking at throughout this, this entire series, what does it mean to be blessed? And so today, we're going to look at what does it mean to be blessed with peace. And we looked at this recently uh, in Christmas, actually, fairly recently, when Pastor Ryan talked about the, the blessing or the, the song that the angels sang at the birth of Jesus when they sang, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, right? Peace on earth is not just an absence of conflict, is what we learned, but it's also the presence of something greater. It's the presence of wholeness. It's a state of integration and harmony in all areas of life. It's with God, with others, and even within ourselves that we need peace. This is true shalom. And in modern Hebrew, you actually greet one another not just by saying shalom, you say mashlomcha, which means how is your peace? So it's this sense of like, how is your well-being? Is everything put together well in your life? And in biblical Hebrew, it's something, it refers to something that's in harmony rather than something that's disjointed. So if you were in debt and you made a payment to somebody that you owed, that was creating shalom. It was creating a sense of wellness within your relationship with this person financially. If you had a house that was damaged, there was like a brick missing or something like that, and you put that brick back where it belongs, you were creating shalom in your house. There's this like state of integration. It also refers to justice, something within society that's not right. It's being made right. It's creating shalom. So shalom, peace, touches a whole lot of different facets of society. And it also touches our relationships. I think we think of peace within our relationships today as having an absence of conflict, but actually an absence of conflict can also be an indication that there's no peace because conflict in relationships leads to a greater sense of peace. Enneagram nines are like, no, I don't know what you're talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about. So there's actually, there's a business guru that many people uh, read that helps with organizational health. His name's Patrick Lencioni or Lencioni, because he's Italian. Um, Lencioni, he has this thing called the conflict continuum. Uh, and he's, he actually says that a lot of organizations exist within a state of what he calls artificial harmony. And it means people are kind of just existing around one another, not really dealing with the issues. Maybe like within your work, that's like a team that you're on where nobody like talks about the real stuff that's going on that actually would bring peace by addressing that type of conflict. And he says, uh, he quotes, nowhere does this tendency toward artificial harmony show itself more than in mission-driven nonprofit organizations, most notably churches. Oops. People who, who work in those organizations tend to have a misguided idea that they cannot be frustrated or disagreeable with one another. What they're doing is confusing being nice with being kind. So the opposite of peace is not war or conflict. It's actually division or fragmentation. 
And we can all agree that our world is not in a state of shalom currently, right? I don't even have to list the things. It just comes right to your mind in light of all the things that have happened in the past couple of years through the pandemic, all of the fractures and the divisions within society, politically, ethnically, even within families has been exposed in so many different ways. But what we have a harder time agreeing on is what shalom does look like, what the world ought to to look like. We don't have a common definition of peace that we share. And in the priestly blessing, shalom or peace is the, ki- is the last blessing that's pronounced upon the people of Israel. This was a blessing that God gave to the high priest Aaron to bless the entire nation of Israel. And so we're going to read it again one last time as uh, we conclude the series but we're actually gonna be spending most of our time today in the book of Ephesians where Paul talks about peace. So this is the blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And we've looked at all of these different aspects of what it means to be blessed throughout these past six weeks. This blessing that is given to Israel is because Israel was meant to be an entire nation of priests. And that means that Israel is representing God to the rest of the world and representing the rest of the world to God. That is what a priest does. The blessing was actually so significant in the life of the people of Israel that it was turned into jewelry, the oldest fragment of the text of the Bible that we have is this copy of the priestly blessing on a silver amulet. You should see it behind you in a moment. Yeah, right there. So that's a silver amulet. It's the oldest known text that we have of the Bible. And it was this priestly blessing. This was a physical way that the people of the nation of Israel would carry God's blessing with them, carry God's name with them wherever they went. To be blessed with peace means that you have this state of rightness or wholeness that's been given to you by God in spite of your circumstances. So what we're going to see is that to be blessed with peace means that rather than being given the autonomy to order your life in the way that you see fit according to your definition so that everything is just right around you, we need to be gifted with an external peace that we did not create and that we wouldn't even have asked for. So we're returning to the book of Ephesians to explore what it could, be mean, what it could mean to be blessed with peace in light of the entire story of what God is doing throughout humanity in light of what Jesus came to do. We studied the book of Ephesians in its entirety last year in our Collective Again series, but today we're gonna be looking at it from the perspective of this priestly blessing and hopefully give us a sense of how God wants to give us this peace and call us to be peacemakers. So would you stand with me as we read? We stand as a way of acknowledging that what we're gonna to read together from the, from the word of God is different than all of the other words that are gonna be uttered this morning. Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse 11, and then we'll pray together. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated 
from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that during this time, you would make us aware of our own uh, faulty definitions of peace, the ways that we seek peace that cannot be provided, um, the ways that we need to submit to your definitions of what peace is. And we pray that our hearts would be open to receive what it is that you have to say from your word this morning in a way that changes us and shapes us into the people that you've called us to be, to be peacemakers, to be people who recognize that we were once far off and we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, you can have a seat. So Ephesians was written to a, a church that didn't have any prior conflict going on, but it was made up of both Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. And this was the major bifurcation of people groups within the ancient world. There was no way that these group, this group of people would be getting along under normal circumstances. So Paul wants to remind them of what their life was like before they knew Jesus. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna see that to understand the peace that God wants to give us, we need to remember the absence of peace, we need to rejoice in the advent of peace, and we need to reflect the achievement of that peace. So to catch a vision for the peace that Paul is describing, we need to understand why this peace is such good news and come to grips with the depths of the bad news. And this is where most of us need to be convinced. For those who follow Jesus and those who don't, we can't Im Im appreciate the full impact of peace until we grasp the true hopelessness of our lives without God. And those who don't follow Jesus, if you're here this morning, you might object that this is the case, like I'm actually doing just fine, thank you very much. And those who, of us who do follow Jesus might have just forgotten that this was the case. We all need to be reminded because the hopelessness of our situation without God is so far-reaching that there is not one single aspect or facet of our lives that is not affected. Without this integrated shalom from God, we experience fragmentation in our lives. 
we're all familiar now with the concept of like social distancing, right? Well, Paul is describing a spiritual distancing. And he describes it in three key ways, that we are alienated from God, that we are alienated from one another, and we are alienated even from ourselves. So first, a lack of shalom means that we are alienated from God, which is disintegration on a spiritual level. God's blueprint for the world was lost through the presence of sin. And we often think of sin as these things that we do that God is just like looking down on us and frowning and saying, no, no, don't do that. But sin is actually a state of being that we as humanity inherited from our first parents when they sinned in the garden. And we ratify their decision to sin every morning when we wake up. This state of sin is not just the things that we do, it is the state that humanity is in without God. But what is it that really changed from that state of shalom that God initially created humanity to experience to what we now experience as this fragmented, disjointed existence? What changed? The Bible's explanation is that we were created to exist in God's presence eternally. We were supposed to exist with our creator in a deep, satisfying spiritual union. So the Garden of Eden, the place that God first created for humans to dwell, was like a temple where the presence of God was meant to exist with his people forever. And humans were meant to be kind of these priests, worshiping God and mediating God's blessing and his presence. And that is the state in which we are most fully at peace, when we are most fully ourselves, is in the presence of God. That is when we are most fully who we were created to be. And sin is not just ugly behaviors or dark temptations that we deal with on a regular basis, but it is a foundational disruption of our ability to be in God's presence. And we are now cut off from experiencing God as we were meant to because of sin. This means we cannot experience what shalom actually is, what peace actually is apart from God. So the background for this whole discussion that Paul gives us is the imagery of the temple in Jerusalem. This was a structure that was created for Israel to worship God. And yet within the temple, the separation that we have from God was not just spiritual, it was actually illustrated by the very architecture of that structure. Everyone was separated from God's presence by this giant curtain that nobody except for the high priest was able to enter, and that just one time every single year. It was clear even to Israel, who were God's chosen people, that they were separated from God's presence. God who is holy and does not exist within sin's presence. But even more than that, who Paul is addressing here is the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who are even more physically separated from the presence of God by something called the court of the Gentiles. So within the temple structure was this place on the outskirts of the temple. And this was as close as people from other nations were allowed to get into the presence of God in Jerusalem. And there was an inscription on the, outs- on the outside of this courtyard of the Gentiles that said something to the effect of, Gentiles only have themselves to blame for their death if they pass beyond this wall. Yikes, right? What are we supposed to make of that? Is this like ethnocentrism on God's part or on Israel's part? No, 
This was pointing forward to what God was going to do in Jesus, but more on that later. So we are clearly separated from God's presence because of our sin, and within Israel, that was demonstrated by the architecture of this very temple. But not only are we separated from God, we're also, because of sin, separated from one another. We are alienated from the commonwealth, as Paul says. So we see that all human beings are alienated from God and the Gentiles especially were alienated on the outskirts of the temple. But the next sphere is this social alienation. Being alienated from God in turn means that we are alienated from one another. We have this disintegration on a social or relational level. Social alienation happens in so many different spheres of life today that it's, it's hard to find a dimension in which shalom actually does exist. There's division along the lines of ethnicity, gender, status, politics, values, religion, and this has become the norm. And these things have become so much more exposed in these past couple of years. But within Paul's context, the way that that played out was in this division between Jew and Gentile. Since Israel was selected by God to be a chosen people, the people who represented his presence to the world, it meant that they had to be physically distinct from other nations. And this wasn't ethnocentrism. This was actually intentional, and it was a positive thing. It was to put God's law on full display, to show what a society was supposed to look like under God's direction. So Israel was called to be a nation of priests and that this differentiation from others was supposed to help them stick out from other nations in a helpful way so that everybody would know what a nation blessed by God looked like. Other nations were supposed to look at Israel and see shalom, to see integration on every level of society and that they would want to be a part of it. But while this was originally intended to be a witness, Israel misunderstood this vocation for preferential treatment by God, for favoritism, which made them hate anyone who was not one of them, hate the Gentiles. And it's not the case that Jewish people were more inclined to be prejudiced than others, but it's the primary category for separation between people groups that existed within Paul's world. So the Jewish people would often call the Gentiles, what he says is the uncircumcision. It's another way of saying those people. It was basically an ethnic, ethnic slur, a racial slur. And we do this today all the time. We define ourselves against those who are different from us. We put labels on people that they would never have given themselves. We reduce people down to stereotypes that we heard at one time in our lives, maybe when we were really young. And the problem, of course, is not the fact that cultures have differences. This is actually a beautiful thing. Diversity reflects God's intention for humanity. But the problem is that we can't exist within this diversity in a state of shalom defining the Gentiles as the uncircumcision. What I was thinking about, it, it was kind of like on the show Lost. You guys remember like the worst six years of your life? Um, I'll never get those years back, man. I don't know how you feel, but like, come on. Like J.J. Abrams, I just can't. Um, it's the story, right? For those of you who are unaware of what I'm talking about, I don't know who that is, but 
Uh, it's the story of survivors of a plane crash on a desert island and they're struggling for survival and they think that they're all alone until they start seeing evidence of other people that they knew nothing about. So what do they call them? The others. Ooh, very creative, right? <laughs> we don't know anything about them, which means we're afraid of them, which means they're not like us at all. So they are other. And this is what we do as humans. We're predisposed to alienate those who are different from us. And this isn't because we have a lack of education, although sometimes that contributes to it. It isn't because we're socially awkward or have less social awareness. It's actually a spiritual thing. It's because of sin. Later on in the show, obviously, we, we discovered that the others were part of the same plane crash and they just happened to crash on another part of the island. But who would have known that? Because they had this preconceived notion about who they were and they had this prejudice. But that is what happens when we are separated from God. We also are separated from one another spiritually because we have this condition of sin within our hearts that makes us prejudice one another. So we are alienated from God and one another. But lastly, a lack of shalom means that we are also alienated even from ourselves. We are disintegrated on a psychological level. And it's obvious to say that within our society, most people can like feel like they could get along good without God. Like most people don't walk around going like, I'm spiritually separated from God. What do I do about that, right? Like it's a challenge to even get somebody to consider that that might be the problem within their lives. It takes a work of God to help us understand that. If there is a God, it's not necessary to have peace with him and the ball is kind of in his court anyway, right? That's what most people think. In other words, spiritual alienation that Paul is talking about is hardly detectable to the modern person. In, other, in, in addition, we are so radically individualistic in our society that we tend to isolate ourselves from one another when other people aren't helping us reach our goals in life. So in other words, social alienation is not as detectable as it might have been in a traditional society. But everybody can identify what it's like to, to sense or feel or experience this psychological disintegration. We know what it means to feel disintegrated within our own mind and our heart. But what we need to understand is that this condition isn't because we have some kind of underlying medical problem. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. It doesn't mean that we need to kind of go get like all Zen and find meditation and find mindfulness and stuff like that. The only natural psychological condition for us if we do not have peace with God is a state of psychological disintegration. Let's think about this together. If God is our creator, he knows everything about us, he knows who we are, what makes us tick, what we're made of, and we have rejected a relationship with him, the one who knows us best, who knows what is good for us, this leaves us grasping in the dark for a sense of identity. Our maker, we and our maker do not have an integrated relationship, then we will not have an integrated relationship with ourselves. Those who reject God, if we reject God, we're, we're left with this hopeless task of self-definition, self-creating, self-identification. 
And we search for identity in so many different spheres of our life, whether it's our family or different relationships, maybe this person will tell me who I am, maybe this career will tell me who I am, maybe these different preferences that I see, these different brands that I've like seen on Instagram and I can create this sense of self from different things that I acquire or buy and society's been structured to basically sell you things to say that that's the case, right? Like these companies have all of this data on you and they're constantly feeding you things. They're like, maybe this is, this is who you are. Or maybe that is who I am. You are what you do. You are what you think. You are what you eat. <laughs> but what happens when one of these things is threatened? What happens to our identity? We experience this psychological chaos. Tim Keller puts it well as he often does. He says, if we are allowed the absolute freedom to define and create ourselves, we become untethered from anything bigger or more enduring than ourselves. If we are untethered from our creator, it, it cannot help but lead to a lack of shalom within ourselves. Do we really understand that this is our condition apart from God. If you're here and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus or a Christian or you're trying out church and all that kind of stuff, have you considered that possibly some of the ambient anxiety that you walk through life with on a daily basis is just part of what it means to be human could be the result of a disintegration in a relationship that you were meant to have with the God who created you? And for those of us who do consider ourselves followers of Jesus, how often do we experience this sense of a, a disintegration on a normal basis because we are not waking up every day trusting that God has redeemed us? Have we spent time remembering what our life was like before we knew Jesus to understand why the good news is so good? That's what Paul is trying to get us to do here, to remember our alienation, so that we can, secondly, rejoice in the advent of peace. Let's read again verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit, to the Father. Once we have truly identified with what a lack of shalom means in our lives, we can be incredibly excited by the good news of but now in verse 13. It sounds like a breath of fresh air and God's breathing that fresh air into every area where we were experiencing disintegration before. We experience reconciliation in every area where we were once alienated. We are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to one another, and even to ourselves. So first, we are reconciled to God, he says, in one body through the cross. So we are reconciled because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, not because of something that we have done, how? He says we are brought near by the blood. 
for us to have a relationship with God, it was necessary for Jesus to die. Nothing other than the perfect son of God's death could pay the debt of all of humanity's sin. We are not morally neutral agents in this situation. In fact, we were enemies of God. Sin didn't just separate us from God spatially, it created enmity with God. Sin effectively puts us on the throne of our own lives where only God belongs. In other words, it's cosmic treason. While we might try to be good, eventually God will come to us politely and say, that's my chair you're sitting in. And his, as a king, he has wrath against anything that causes him to, causes his rule to be obstructed. So his wrath was poured out on sin, but because Jesus took our place, he stood in that place where we ought to have been. So not only did Jesus have to die, but he was also willing to die, not for good or morally neutral people, but for his enemies. Colossians puts it this way, Colossians chapter one, Paul says elsewhere, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The peace that Jesus won for us is costly. Jesus' death was the final blow in a spiritual battle that made it possible for humanity as God's enemies to be welcomed as family. Jesus wasn't just some insurrectionist who died an unfortunate death after you know, crossing the Roman Empire. His peace is available to us only if we admit that our sin was cosmic rebellion against our creator and required a drastic solution. Anything less than that trivializes the very reason for Jesus' existence. As Paul says in verse 14, he himself is our peace. So a lack of peace, a lack of shalom actually comes from not knowing the person of Jesus, the prince of peace. This is a radically different understanding of peace than any other philosophy or religious belief. Peace is not some abstract concept. It's not some Zen state of being that you achieve. It is a person to be known. And when Jesus came, he demonstrated what shalom looks like in all of these different areas, with God, with one another, and within himself. He had this relationship with his heavenly father that was dynamic and essential to his life and he would often withdraw into solitude to spend time with him. His relationships were not marked by fragmentation and prejudice and his confidence in his own identity gave him an internal peace that allowed him to define himself against the labels and categories that other people would put him in. And he said that this peace is now available to us if we walk with him. Because the first and most important place that peace begins is within the hearts of those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Jesus brought peace between God and humanity. We cannot have peace socially or even peace within ourselves until we have peace with our creator. 
It establishes the basis for reconciled relationships with people who are different from us. Like the, the Christmas song that we sing by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he puts peace on earth in the same breath as God and sinners reconciled because we cannot have one without the other. So we are reconciled to God through our faith in Jesus, through the sacrifice that, we, that he made for us. And now we are reconciled within the people of God. Paul says, one new humanity has been made in the place of two. So reconciliation was possible then between Jews and Gentiles and by extension between all people groups on earth who belong to God. And he said this happened in verse 14 and 15, through the broken wall and the abolished law. As we saw earlier, the, the law, the Torah, was actually a good thing that God gave Israel to separate them from the other nations in a positive way as a way of showing other nations what God's favor and blessing looked like so that other nations would wanna be a part of it, but we know that this was eventually viewed incorrectly as privilege by Israel, or that they were privileged and they viewed others with derision. But whereas this covenant that God gave to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, separation from other nations was the witness, in the new covenant through Jesus, unity is the witness. This wall is broken down, so today, all of us sitting in this room who have faith in Jesus from all of the different ethnic and cultural backgrounds that we have, me as a Jewish person, you as Gentiles, we have a few other Jews in the, in the church as well, but we sit here today being able to be reconciled by the blood of Jesus. We can call one another brothers and sisters. We can be spiritual family and we can celebrate that our differences no longer need to create division because of Jesus's work to demolish our natural disposition of hostility. And we can have a unity in diversity. We can have a unity that doesn't mean uniformity. Not all of us are the same. <laughs> Thank God, right? But Jesus has created the potential for that unity. And this shows us something important, that the inclusion of all nations into the family of God was not an afterthought in God's plan. The peace and unity between different and naturally opposed people groups was at the center of God's ultimate plan for creation. And it is through this peace that he created in the gospel that he chooses to make his very dwelling place. Paul says a, a temple is being created in the midst of this unified people where God himself dwells to the extent that we as a church, that we as the church, as the family of God are pursuing peace and living out of that unity, we are powerfully displaying the presence of God to the world. In the Jewish worldview, Jew and Gentile, like I said, was the primary distinction that existed. And now Paul is saying that that most fundamental division has been erased. And in our society, we see division along other dividing lines than Jew and Gentile. Within our own nation, the history between black and white people, between male and female, between left and right, and on a global scale, between Israelis, Palestinians, you name it. But let me assure you that the peace that Jesus created through his death and resurrection is powerful enough 
to dismantle both ancient and modern walls of division. Jesus' peace provides the basis for an otherwise impossible peace. More on that in a moment. So reconciled to God and to one another, but finally we've been reconciled even to ourselves. We have this shalom on a psychological and integrated individual level. Through the peace that comes through the gospel, we're reconciled to ourselves because our identity is now rightly derived from who we are in Christ. In other words, now that we have access to our Father, who's the one who created us, we belong. We are home. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus are adopted into the family of God. We now have access in one spirit to the Father, and we are who he says we are. So not only has the wall been torn down, dividing Jews and Gentiles, but also that curtain that I mentioned separating all people from the presence of God, when Jesus died, it was torn in two, representing that all people now have access to their heavenly Father. And when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he showed them what this peace really means and where it came from. Our definition of peace as just kind of like this Zen experience of everything going right circumstantially around us needs to be rewired. And Jesus tells us a little bit more about what it means. He says in the book of John chapter 14, he says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you see the connection there that the peace of Jesus that he gives to his, his disciples is the presence of God through the Spirit. The same presence of God that we were separated from since the Garden of Eden is now with us on a daily basis through the Spirit. Jesus goes on and says in, in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The peace that Jesus promises us is not a constant state of tranquility. It is not an existence where nothing really gets to you, even when things are falling apart. The shalom that God allows you to experience means that you can go through life, experiencing life when things are not as they ought to be, we can experience God making them right because we have his presence. He's not saying you'll always feel close to God. There's, there's no situation in which you will not feel close to me. He's not saying that. He's not saying you'll automatically get along with your neighbors. He's not saying that you'll never struggle with poor mental health or anxiety or something like that. He's not saying that I'm giving you this Holy Spirit so that you can control your circumstances so that your life goes according to your plans. Jesus is not saying you can have peace to overcome the world. He's saying you can have peace because I have overcome the world. 
Jesus' blessing of peace is a gift that enables us to have unexplainable resiliency in the face of any challenge because of the larger story of what God has done on a cosmic level. Rather than our feelings, rather than being based on our feelings that change moment by moment, God's peace is grounded in this fixed historical reality, the death of Jesus on the cross that affects all of human history. Choosing to trust in this story makes all of the difference on a day-to-day basis. I learned that this week when our son, Itai, our third uh, child who's about 15 months old now, he woke up in the middle of the night around 2 a.m. or so, and he's like our best sleeper. Like the other two kids were terrible, but he like, that's not true, but he's like, maybe we just kind of like mellowed out or something as time has gone by, but like he sleeps through the night without fail. But as I'm like, sitting and thinking about peace throughout this week. Wednesday night, two in the morning, he just wakes up and just will not go back to sleep for like three hours, just crying every few minutes, trying to put him back to bed. And I found myself sitting there going like, God, just give him peace. God, just give him peace. And I was like, what are you doing right now? You're trying to control your circumstances by praying that God would give your kid peace when it's really just you who doesn't have peace. (laughs) Like this is what babies do. They cry all the time. You're the one who's trying to control your circumstances with peace. The peace that God promises us is not that everything will be like under control and that your circumstances will be all dialed in and you can like make things clean over here and you can like make your bed. Everything will be neat and tidy. That's not peace. The peace of God is grounded in the fixed historical reality of Jesus' death on the cross. And now we can reflect the achievement of that peace to the world. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now that we've remembered the absence of peace and rejoiced in the advent of peace, we now need to reflect the achievement of peace like a mirror. It's been said that all of Paul's writings in the New Testament can be summed up in the phrase, become who you are. Paul goes at length to describe what is true about us in the gospel before exhorting us to do anything about it. Become who you already are in Christ. Later on in Ephesians, we read some of the most famous exhortations in the New Testament about peace within your relationships between wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters. But all of these commands are grounded in the peace that God has already secured in the gospel. And our task is now to reflect that peace to the world because the purpose for the peace that God created is witness. 
through the church, through this new family that God has created, God's plan of redemption has been given a visible expression for all to see. We can now, verb, as a verb, do peace. But we need to acknowledge that this is not really the reality that we're living with. We need to acknowledge that the church has failed at this time and time again. In the very place where the reconciliation, where the power of God is supposed to be most fully on display, the church has been a battleground of ethnic division, racial division, economic division, and we need to repent of that. What if the way that God is going to start displaying his peace through the church once again in our nation is through the repentance of the church for where we have failed to do so? We need, if we're gonna live like we're members of this family, we need to be convinced that we belong to this family, right? So Paul says, where you were once far off, you've been brought near. Where you were once strangers, you are now citizens. Where you were once alienated, you've been reconciled. Where you've once been separated, you are now one new humanity. And where you were once without God, you are now the temple of God. We need to be convinced that we belong. Next, we must stand on our foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone of this new structure that God is building. We need to be careful not to erect new walls where Christ has broken them down. We need to maintain a gospel-motivated humility when it comes to one another. We need to practice what we've done in our time together this morning. We need to remember what it's like to not have this peace, to be able to rejoice in the peace that God provided if we are going to be peacemakers to live in this state of constant remembrance about what God has done leads to humility when interacting with those different from us. If we can remember the love that God showed us in Christ when we were his enemies, this gives us the basis for loving our enemies, for pursuing peace and displaying the unity within the church that compels the world to listen to the gospel. We need to remember that God won this peace for us in the most subversive way possible through Jesus' death. In effect, God won by losing. (laughs) And in doing this, he actually showed us a pattern for how we're supposed to work for peace. Eugene Peterson says it well. He says, peace is continuous, complex, and strenuous. If we're serious about it, and many of us are, we soon learn that there are no shortcuts. We accept the conditions given to us as the church. Jesus, who does not force peace upon us, our neighbors, backyard and worldwide, upon whom we don't impose peace, and sacrifice, sacrifice the only way, the Jesus way of bringing about peace without violence. This is the Jesus-shaped way to bring peace. It's through humility. While the walls of hostility between Jews and Gentiles have been broken down, we need to guard against building new walls based on things like denomination or race or anything that encourages an us and them mentality. 
Paul is encouraging us to remember that for all intents and purposes, none of us should belong, but we do. Spiritual pride and hypocrisy cannot exist within a church that is constantly remembering and rejoicing in the good news of the gospel. So we need to guard against building new walls within the church, but we also need to guard against building new walls around the church. One of the main deterrents, let's be honest about this, one of the main deterrents that keeps people who don't know Jesus from meeting him is the lack of unity that they see within the church. And we cannot be defensive about this. We need to repent. We need to turn from the ways that we have caused division within the church to acknowledge that there's a dissonance between the unity that God created in the gospel, which we aspire to, and the disunity that we display on a daily basis within the church when we fail to exhibit it. We cannot perpetuate a vision of the church that says, we have everything all together. Come to us. We'll teach you how to do it. A church that touts itself as having all of their ducks in a row prepares the world for disappointment and frustration. We do not have it all together. As it's been said, we need to communicate a vision of the church that says hospital for sinners rather than museum for saints. So we reflect peace by not building new walls and we can also reflect peace by allowing God to do his work within us making us collectively representatives of his presence. All of the verbs in this last section of Ephesians 2 are passive. It means that these are things that God is doing to us. Rather than being given access to God's new temple, we are God's new temple. He made his spirit dwell within us. And last year when we worked through Ephesians bit by bit, we made a big deal about this, that whenever Paul says you, In the book of Ephesians, he's actually saying y'all. He's saying second person plural. So y'all are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Yes, it is true that God's Spirit dwells within you on an individual basis, but you are not a solitary temple. You are a stone in God's building project. And there is a command that's implicit within this. If we are to be a stone being built into a temple for God, we cannot remain a solitary stone. We are saved when we place our faith in Jesus into the church in order to demonstrate this reconciling power of God. But we often boil the Christian life down to different bullet points like prayer, reading scripture, witnessing, and community. But community is not a side dish on the menu of the life of faith, right? Yes, the, the local church is not a bullet point on God's list of to-dos. It's not the side dish. It's the context where everything happens. It's the table you're sitting at when you're doing all of the stuff, when you're eating the meal with your brothers and sisters. Because God has created this peace for us apart from human effort. And now we display that peace when we exist in harmony as the local church. We are called to live like this peace that God created is true. We are to become who we are in Christ. We are the dwelling place of God. Okay, now be built. Become a stone in God's building project. 
This doesn't mean that God is the one who's doing all the work and we sit on our couch scrolling Instagram while he makes us into one unified family. He calls us to be peacemakers as well, not peacekeepers, right? Not ignoring the conflict that we see, but actually going out and making peace. We mediate God's presence to the world through our unity. So as we've considered over the past six weeks what it looks like to receive God's blessing, this priestly blessing that turns us into mediators of God's presence, let us remember that we need to live into this identity to carry God's presence with us wherever we go because his spirit now dwells with us, to mediate his presence, his blessings to everybody that we come into contact with and to represent the needs and the concerns of the people in our lives to God. That is how we can represent God well as priests. We present God's peace as priests in ways that display the gospel's power when there should be absolutely no reason for peace. To the extent that the church displays the effects of true peace, we actually reflect God to the world. And it's amazing because God's plan of peace is this cosmic foreordained thing that God has been doing since the foundation of the world to unite all people to himself. And it's as practical and tangible as you not giving up on the person sitting next to you when they're driving you crazy. That's how practical it is. There is conflict within our church community. There are people who have left over relational discord and that is not displaying the peace of God over these small, petty things that Jesus died for. Jesus died for such incredible disunity that we had with God. We cannot allow our unity that he has created to be disrupted by such petty and small things. I was thinking, back in the first century, the unity between Jewish and Gentile people would have been Astounding! It wouldn't been, have been able to be explained by some like social construct or idea or program. It was obviously miraculous. So what kind of unions today, what kind of reconciled relationships would display that kind of unexplainable gospel power today? There's a, there's a ministry that I follow within Israel called Musalaha, which is Arabic for reconciliation. And what they do is they take Israelis and Palestinians camping into the desert and they sit down in their campsite and they air all of the grievances, all of the wounds, all of the stuff that they've come to believe about one another. And because of the gospel, because of the reconciliation power of Jesus, they leave that camping trip saying, you are my brother. They do it on this small scale within groups of like five to 10 people because this is where that kind of conflict, that kind of peacemaking can get worked out on a regular basis. Imagine if that was happening in our city to some degree. The other example that I love that I found um, is the example of a man named Daryl Davis who is a prolific jazz piano player and uh, throughout his last 30 years, what he has been doing is not, uh, he's not been playing as much piano as he has been sitting down with members of the KKK. <laughs> as an African-American man, 
he's been sitting down with members of the KKK, even up to like the highest level of their group, of their society, and listening to them, asking them why they hate him. And throughout his 30 years of effort, dozens of people who were once ardent members of the KKK have given him their robes to be burned. Even up to like the highest level of the KKK, like one of the regional directors or grandmasters, whatever weird stuff that it's called. He has sat down with those people, listened to them, and created peace where there is absolutely no reason to be peace. And now he considers some of these people his closest friends. Are you kidding me? And we give up over the smallest things in relationships. How do we carry this priestly blessing with us now? Now that we have the very presence of God dwelling within us, it's by making peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Jesus has won this peace through his death and resurrection. And now we have the privilege of making peace wherever we go, being who we are, becoming who God has created us to be. We don't need a little silver amulet because we have God's presence dwelling within us. But we don't pretend that there is peace where it hasn't already been made. We don't avoid the conflict that is necessary to become peacemakers. We follow the Jesus-shaped pattern of losing to win. Making peace looks like first admitting where we are falling short of that peace. So let's go to God now and ask him to make us into peacemakers. Amen.